Did you know that you can be a critically thinking, rational person and be a Christian? Did you know that there's good evidence that Christianity is true? Did you know that the Christian faith can withstand the toughest of scrutiny? Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, where we believe because of the brains God gave us and not in spite of them. I'm your host, Evan Minton. Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, where we use the brains that God gave us. I hope that you've been uh, subscribing to the Cerebral Faith YouTube channel. It's called Cerebral Faith Video. I've been putting up several videos on the Kalam Cosmological Argument. Uh, the first one was 40 minutes long. The second one uh, looks at objections to premise one of the Kalam Cosmological Argument, and that one is 16 minutes long. And then part three of the video series, I look at objections to premise two of the Kalam cosmological argument. That's that's forty minutes long. Uh, the the one that that one just came out yesterday. Uh, I've got one coming out next week that's going to be looking at objections that atheists have to the conceptual analysis of the Kalam cosmological argument. But uh, them. And that one's already made, and if you're a Cerebral Faith patron, you can you can look at that one already. And you can also look at the uh, uh, video that I made defending the fine-tuning argument. That one is an hour long. It's going to be a full presentation. Not all of the videos on the Cerebral Faith YouTube channel are going to be like 40, hour, uh, 40 minutes or one hour long. Uh, I'm going to try to keep them an average of 15 to 20 minutes. Uh, but... You know, it just, uh, and if I have a lot to say, then sometimes I'll just break them up into multiple parts, like I did with the Kalam video. I had a lot to, there was a lot to unpack with the Kalam cosmological argument, so I just broke them up into four videos. Uh, I just, I decided I'm, I wasn't going to do that with the fine-tuning argument. Of course, I do have some videos about the fine-tuning argument that I plan to make um, in the future. But uh, that's, that's been eating up a lot of my time. I've been very busy, and that's why this podcast episode is late, because I've been doing a lot of uh, YouTube stuff. And not just YouTube stuff, but blog stuff, too. You know, the thing that Cerebral Faith started out as? I've been getting a lot of questions from uh, over email from people about various different topics, and I've uh, had to write blog post Q&A episodes to those. I mean, uh, did I say episodes? No, I meant blog posts. Yeah, Q&A blog posts. Responding to those questions. So, things have just been really picking up. And so, I just have not had the opportunity to, to record this podcast I'm recording it today. Today is Saturday. Today is the day it was supposed to be released. So I'm sorry about that, but um, you know what they say, better late than never. Now, last week on this podcast, we talked about the superhero movies and uh, comic books and how they sort of give us good illustrations to draw on when talking about responses to the problem of evil. For example, Doctor Strange uh, looking at 14 million different um, alternate futures and choosing to actualize one out of the 14 million uh, by giving the time stone to Thanos... 
even though he knew that that would cause uh, a world and, and with five years of terrible suffering, it was the only world, the only possible world that Doctor Strange could actualize in which the Avengers eventually defeat Thanos and everyone lives. I mean, they had to die first, but Hulk uses the, he gets the Infinity Gauntlet, he snaps everyone back to life. Iron Man uses the Infinity Gauntlet to, to snap Thanos and his army out of existence. And that's the only feasible world that the uh, Doctor Strange had in which he could, you know, it was the only one he had to work with. He had to work with all of the, uh, the knowledge of what all free creatures would freely choose to do in any given circumstance. He had that knowledge, and he acted on that knowledge to manipulate the events in such a way so that the Avengers came out on top. And God is, he very well may be in a similar situation. The logical version of the problem of evil goes that if God is all-powerful, then he can create any kind of world that he wants. That's the first premise. The second premise is that if God is all-loving, then he would prefer to create a world in which there is no evil and no suffering. And so from being able to create such a world and desiring to create such a world, that leads to the third premise that since God is able to create a world with no evil and suffering, and since he would desire to create a world, therefore such a world does not exist. In other words, there's no evil. But that uh, that, that contradicts the overwhelmingly obvious fact that evil exists. And so the logical version of the problem of evil says that God and evil are logically incompatible. They're like the irresistible force and the immovable object. If one exists, the other cannot. But one way to refute the logical version of the problem of evil, all you have to do to refute the, logic, the logical version is just simply to point out that there is a possible way that both God and evil can coexist. And one response is what Alvin Plantinga came up with. It is called the, it's usually called the free will defense. And this is that it may be the case that in any feasible world that God could create, no matter how he arranges people, when and where people are born, no matter where people are born, no matter when people are born, no matter how he arranges people in space and time, and no matter who he creates, there would always be some people who freely choose to abuse their free will and introduce suffering into the creation. No matter which world, if God creates a world with free creatures at all, no matter, no matter what, there would be some who choose to do suffering. Any feasible world that's available to God, there will be some who do right and some who do wrong, some who come to salvation, some who don't. And so it is possible. And so that that premise that if God is all powerful, He could create any world He wants, that's not necessarily true. And it has to be necessarily true in order for the logical version of the problem of evil to go through. If it's even possible that that premise is false, if it's possible that God could not create any sort of world He wants, and that world would being a world with free creatures who always choose to do the right thing, then the logical version of the problem of evil collapses. And so, here's what I uh, said, uh, and the, the Doctor Strange analogy did not come from me, so don't give me credit for being so smart to recognize that. It came from Tim Stratton, and Tim Stratton um, said that 
you know, Doctor Strange and God, they're kind of in a similar position. They have to, they have to choose, they can't choose a perfect world. Doctor Strange could not choose a perfect scenario where the Avengers defeat Thanos, but they didn't go through that five years of terrible suffering. He couldn't, he couldn't prevent Thanos from getting the gauntlet and snapping everyone out of existence. But what Doctor Strange could do is actualize a world in which that snapping was undone and Thanos was defeated. And so in a similar way, God could not choose to create a world in which no one freely chooses to do wrong, but he could create a world in which uh, even when we, when we fall into sin, he comes into this world, dies on the cross, rises from the dead to atone for our sins. He redeems us, those of us who, who choose it, and eventually he creates a new heaven and a new earth where those of us who have learned better, we've learned how stupid sin is, uh, we won't choose to do wrong, and we'll have a we will have a, a perfect world, eventually. But we we got we got to go through this this really crappy pre Revelation twenty one stage first, and it is also possible that God can have moral other morally sufficient reasons for permitting evil besides. Besides um, allowing free will, and I talk, I talk about this as well in several of my blog posts. Um, God, God knows what would occur in any given circumstance, and so God could allow some action in the present, knowing that if He allows it, then good would eventually come about. Um, God. If it is true that this is the most optimal world that God could actualize, where all of his achieved goals are reached, there's libertarian free will, and ergo love is possible, that whenever evil and suffering occurs, good comes out of it, either quickly or eventually. Jesus died for the sins of the world. As a result of Jesus dying for the sins of the world, eternal life is given to many, etc., 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 etc. You know, there's a lot of things that God had, that had to take into account when deciding which world to actualize. So, um, we just need to see the big picture. Every event that occurs affects other greater goods that come about from that. And those greater goods, even the goods that come about from evils, cause other future events that cause other future events that cause other future events, and those cause other future events. Time travel enthusiasts know this full well. When you go back in time and you change one thing, one seemingly insignificant thing, you come back to the present and the whole future is, your, your whole present is different because every single seemingly infinite, uh, insignificant event sends cause and effect temporal ripples throughout time. God providentially ordering a world of free creatures towards all of his intended goals is an extremely, overwhelmingly complex endeavor. Moreover, temporal uh, events are not temporal islands unto themselves. Again, event, every event causes another event. If God permits A in order to bring about D, well, D is going to bring about some future event within itself. So, for example, in the story of Joseph in Genesis 37 to 38, which I talk about in my paper, Why the Problem of Evil is a Failed Argument for Atheism, you can get that on the Cerebral Faith website, 
God wasn't just concerned with saving many lives from starvation, but also of preserving the messianic bloodline, getting Israel into Egypt to prove his power to them by defeating their gods through the plagues and leading them into the promised land. And the entire history of the Bible, which led up to Jesus' death and resurrection, which then led to the commissioning of the disciples to spread the gospel, and so on. We cannot fathom the entangled web of cause and effect and the impact that each of our lives and events has on others, uh, on other lives and, and on other future events. Providentially ordering a world of free creatures is messy, and if it was really infeasible for God to actualize a world of free creatures where no one ever freely chooses to do wrong, then ordering a said world will involve some suffering. But all of God's goals will end up being accomplished in the end. We will go from the Garden of Eden to the new heavens and earth. And so this also gets into the evidential problem of evil. What I've just laid out is, is what some philosophers called skeptical theism. We are not in a good position to say a good God will not allow fill in the blank. For we cannot judge how or whether X would or would not fit into God's goals for this stage of human existence, this pre-Revelation 21 stage. Uh, so, we just have no idea. Any event that occurs, you, God's reason for permitting it might not emerge until centuries later, and perhaps even in another country. God permitting the World Trade Center, for example, that could have... God could have 100 morally different, re morally sufficient reasons, 100 mo different morally sufficient reasons, which each manifest themselves in different eras of human history, in different people's lives, in different points in time. And if God had not, per if God had stopped that from occurring, then the, gr then the various greater goods that would ripple out into the future, those would not occur. We're just not in a position to judge whether or not it's probable that God has a good reason for permitting any event of suffering. But enough of that. Let's get to today's topic. Anime illustrations. We, we got into superhero illustrations last time. This time we're going to get into anime illustrations. Anime, if you don't know, uh, are Japanese animated television shows. They come in a wide variety of different genres, uh, and different shows are targeted at different age groups. Some are for kids, see what I did there, and others have uh, too much violence to be suitable for anyone under the age of 15. And like I said last time, I, it's always fun to make pop culture references when doing apologetics. I have a chance to get nerdy and talk about my favorite fictional characters from movies, TV shows, comic books, etc., uh, while also making very serious points. And uh, places on the blog in which I've done this in the past were blog posts such as Daleks, Davros, and the Moral Argument, and in my blog post, Shiny Pokemon and a Finely Tuned Universe. And of course, I have blog posts a blog post called Superhero Theodicies, in which I talk about what I talked about on the podcast last week, and a blog post called Anime Theodicies, which I, covers the same material I'm going to be talking about in today's podcast episode. And now, here, here's the thing. Unlike in Superhero Theodicies, uh, where, you know, where Doctor Strange's inability to actualize a future in which the Avengers beat Thanos, but doesn't also involve... Uh, five years of suffering similar to God's inability to actualize a feasible world where everyone always does good. Uh, where examples like that were taken from other people. Tim Stratton made that, 
made that one in a couple of his blog posts. Uh, all of the ones I'm going to be talking about today from anime are ones that I came up with. Ones that, as I was watching anime world-viewishly, as I like to call it, uh, these just these just came to me. So let's let's dive right into it. First one is Death Note. Death Note and Total Depravity. De um, Death Note uh, aired on Cartoon Network's Adult Swim back when I was 17 years old. Um, interestingly, the same age as the protagonist. And uh, it's a very popular show to this day. It started as a manga, which is the, a Japanese comic book. Uh, then it got ad ad adapted into an anime, and it became so popular that Net Netflix decided to make an adaptation to it that everyone and their brother hates. Now, what is Death Note? Death Note is a series about an extremely intelligent 17-year-old boy named Light Yagami, who one day discovers a notebook on the ground at his high school. It was called, surprise, surprise, a Death Note. A Death Note... Uh, that was dropped by a god of death, or Shinigami. Opening it up, Light Yagami reads instructions on how to use the Death Note. He reads that anyone whose name is written in the Death Note will die. You can write down what their cause of death will be, and that event will happen. So, for example, if you write car accident, the person will die in a car accident. If you write... Um, murder, then the person will be murdered. Uh, if you don't write a cause of death at all, then the default, the default cause of death is a heart attack. Now, somewhat skeptical and curious, Light decides to test this out. Light does this by writing down the name of a criminal involved in a hostage situation that he watches on live TV. Forty seconds later, the criminal dropped dead to Light's astonishment. I'd be pretty astonished too. Now, here's a, here's a quotation taken from the article Rebirth from Death Note Wiki. It says, quote, I lost it. Oh, there, it says, quote, still not completely convinced it was a coincidence, Light decides to test the notebook a second time. He decides against killing Sudo, a bully at his school, to avoid killing anyone he actually knows. On his way home from cram school, he sees a motorcycle gang abusing a young woman. Hearing that the leader's name is Takuo Shibuimaru, Light walks into a shop and writes Takuo's name in a number of variations to make sure he, names his, he spells his name correctly. To further test the notebook, Light writes the cause of death to be a traffic accident. Forty seconds later, Takuo is struck by a passing truck. Realizing that he has killed two people, Light is violently sick. End quote. That's from the, the Death Note wiki, the article called Rebirth. Later that night, the Shinigami, or God of Death, Ryuk, appears to Light and gives him more information about the Death Note, including the fact that no human who uses the Death Note can ever go to heaven nor hell for eternity. They can't go to heaven and they can't go to hell. Shortly after that, Light gets an idea. He surveys the immense evil 
in the world. And he realizes that just by knowing the names of evildoers, he can kill them remotely, and thus no one will know that he's behind their deaths. He, and, and he can get rid of all of the evil people in the world. Light said, quote and end quote, this world is rotting, and those who are making it rot deserve to die. Ryuk tells him that, that if he goes through with his plans, by the end, there will only be one evil person left. And Light responds, what are you talking about, Ryuk? Now, there are some interesting theological truths revealed in this dialogue between Light and Ryuk. And Ryuk. The first, number one, the world is indeed rotting, and it's humanity's fault. The problem of evil is actually our fault. If only we humans chose to do good all the time and never chose to do evil, there wouldn't be any suffering. This world is, would be a great place to live. The problem of evil is an indictment on, of the depravity of man. Psalm chapter 14, verses 2 to 4 says, The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. And Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. After God destroyed evil, all evil humanity and the Nephilim abomination with the flood, I'm sorry, I had to turn my phone off. I kept getting messenger notifications. After God destroyed evil humanity and the Nephilim abomination with the flood, Noah offered a sacrifice to God. Genesis 8.21 then says, when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, he said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil from his youth. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. Jeremiah 17.9 says, even says that the human heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Humans are what theologians call totally depraved. Now, this term, total depravity, does not mean that we're all as evil as we can possibly be. Mr. Rogers was obviously a better person than Joseph Stalin, for example. Rather, the doctrine of total depravity teaches that every facet of the human person is infected with and affected by... It is every facet of the human person is infected with and affected by sin... Our emotions, our wills, our desires, our reason, etc. This sinful state is so radical that we cannot even turn to God on our own power. God has to send us grace in order for us to come to Him. See John chapter 6, verse 44, John chapter 6, verse 65, confer John chapter 12, verse 32, and Acts chapter 16, verse 14. Don't blame God for the evil in the world. The problem of evil is my fault. Blame me. Also, blame yourself and blame everyone you meet. We all contribute to the problem to some degree or other. Some of us contribute a lot more than others. Hitler and Stalin contribute a lot, contributed a lot more to making this world a terrible place to live than probably you or I combined. But we all contribute some. We all do our fair share in making this world an unhappy place to live. 
The second theological truth that comes from Light and Ryuk's conversation is that those who are making this world rot deserve to die. It's an, it's an actual quote from the, from the series. Light Yagami said, This world is rotting, and those who are making it rot deserve to die. The Apostle Paul would give a hearty amen to that, for he said the same thing 2,000 years ago, just using different words. In Romans 6.23a, Paul wrote, For the wages of sin is death. Sin is an abomination to God. It's so dis- sin is so disgusting to God that Habakkuk 1.13 says that he cannot even bear to look at it. He is that holy. And as a just and righteous judge, God will execute the death penalty on wicked sinners. For, see, for example, Matthew 10.28, Revelation chapter 20, verses 14 to 15, and 2 Thessalonians 1.9. Fortunately for us, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, so that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. John chapter 3, verses 16 to 17. Jesus took the punishment for our sins upon himself, as Isaiah 53, 1 Peter 3, 18, and 1 Corinthians 15, 3 says. He took our punishment so that we wouldn't have to. If we place our faith in him, his blood that he shed at the cross will cleanse us of our sins. We will be forgiven. Jesus is our penal substitutionary He's our penal substitution. His death brings atonement. So even though the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23a, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, Romans 6.23b. This is because God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5.28. The third theological insight that we can glean from Light and Ryuk's conversation is that life is not ours to take. When Ryuk told Light that if he wiped out every evil person in the world, including anyone who might possibly try to stop him, that there would be there would be one evil person left, he could have either been referring to the fact that all humanity is evil, and therefore he would literally have to wipe every single person off the face of the earth, including himself, or that as a result of getting rid of all the evil people, he would become a murderer. It's, 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 I think we can interpret Ryuk's uh, mess, uh, words one way or the other. It's either, well, you'd have to kill... Ryuk was either saying, well, you'd have to kill everyone in the whole world, including yourself, and the Death Note is not that thick. <laughs> or he's saying, hey, after d- doing all of this, you'll have become a serial killer. And therefore, y- you'd be evil yourself. And, and therefore, yeah, you'd have to get rid of yourself. Only God has the right, only he has the right to determine when a person's time on earth is over. He preserves that right for himself. As the Bible says, quote, A man's days are numbered. God knows the number of his months. He cannot live longer than the time God has set. End quote. Job chapter 14, verse 5. And, quote, The Lord giveth, and the Lord taketh away. 
End quote. Job chapter 1, verse 21. King James Version. In, uh, in Deuteronomy 32:35, which is quoted in Romans 12:19, God says, "It is mine to avenge. I will repay. In due time there, the evildoers, foot will slip. Their day of disaster is near, and their doom rushes upon them. God is the author of life, and therefore he has the right to take it as he sees fit. He reserves that prerogative for himself. He reserves for himself the prerogative to execute vengeance for himself, or he, he gives that to a court of law, like in Leviticus. The, the, Levit- the Israelite theocracy had the, had the right to execute the death penalty on murderers, adulterers, and, and so on. Um, but vigilant, but a, a, a vigilante, a human individual, was not allowed to just like, take vengeance for himself and, and kill someone. What we do, we are not. We're not to take matters into our own hands. Vigilante justice is frowned upon just as much in God's law as it is in man's law. I think that Death Note beautifully paints the human predicament. It 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 shows us. It reminds us. It brings to our attention what kind of world we live in, and and that. Some, this is not the way things are supposed to be. It reminds us that it is our fault, and that we de- because we've made this world such a horrible place to live, we deserve to die. But we, but we don't, we don't deserve to die. I mean, we don't desire to die. We, we desire redemption. In other, so I think Death Note is just like one of the perfect animes to make a springboard conversation and present someone with the gospel message, like I've done in this podcast. It reminds us of why God came into our world. Next illustration comes from one of my all-time favorites. I mean, like, I have, like, a top five, the best animes of all time. Bleach is up there, Pokemon is up there, Digimon's up there, uh, the, the Dragon Ball series... It comes from Full Metal Alchemist. Full Metal Alchemist is a show that takes place in a universe where alchemy is actually a successful science. We know in the real world, if you've, if you've studied the history of science, alchemy was a total failure. Alchemy didn't work. It was just... The, the whole field, it was a failed field of science. It wasn't just that, you know, it wasn't like other fields of science where you have like falsified theories and verified theory no the whole field was discredited but this takes place this show takes place in an alternate universe where it actually works because the world runs by different laws of chemistry um wikipedia explains that yeah i know i know uh uh rely citing wikipedia as a source is a no-no but i'm i'm actually I'm a huge fan of the show, so I can personally vouch for the accuracy of what I'm about to quote. So, there. (laughs) Uh, Wikipedia explains that, quote, In this world, alchemy is one of the most most practiced sciences. Alchemists who work for the government are known as state alchemists and are automatically given the rank of major in the military. 
Alchemists have the ability, with the help of patterns called transmutation circles, to create almost anything they desire. However, when they do so, they must provide something of equal value in accordance with the law of equivalent exchange. The only things alchemists are forbidden from transmuting are humans and gold. There has never been a successful human transmutation. Those who attempt those who attempt it lose a part of their body, and the result is a horrific, inhuman mass. Attemptees are confronted by the truth, in Japanese, Shinri, a pantheistic and semi-cerebral godlike being who tauntingly regulates all alchemy use and whose nigh-featureless appearance is relative to the person to whom truth is conversing with. It is frequently claimed and believed that truth is a personal god who punishes the arrogant. It is possible to bypass the law of equivalent exchange to an extent using a philosopher's stone, a red enigmatic substance. Philosopher's stones can be used to create homunculi, artificial humans of proud nature. Homunculi have numerous superhuman abilities, unique among each other, and look down upon all humanity. With the exception of one, they do not age and can only be killed via the destruction of their philosopher's stones. End quote. Now, with all of this information in mind, this is where our heroes, Edward and Alphonse Elric, come in. Their father was a skilled alchemist, and they themselves intensely studied all of the books that, they had, uh, that he had. Their father left them one day, leaving their mother, Trisha Elric, to raise them by herself. Trisha fell ill and died. Determined to bring her back, they set up a large transmutation circle and attempted to use alchemy to bring her back to life. The plan backfires, and Alphon is pulled into the gate of truth by freaky-looking black-arm things, uh, and the, the freaky-looking black arms tear Edward's right arm and left leg off. In an attempt, a desperate attempt to save his brother, Ed takes blood from his bleeding right shoulder and uses his left finger to draw a transmutation circle on a nearby suit of armor in order to bind Alphonse's soul to it. Alphonse now, literal, now he, he Alphonse literally becomes a ghost in a shell. He literally be, he literally becomes a ghost, a soul, a disembodied mind inside of a suit of armor, and he controls the suit of armor as as a body. Um, Alphonse, in, now literally a ghost in a suit of armor, carries Edward to their neighbor's house. Uh, Winry Rock... I, her name is hard to say. Winry Rockbell. <laughs> Winry Rockbell, someone who makes... A, she's someone who makes advanced prosthetics called automail. She, she makes... She uses her skills to make an automail arm and, and leg for Edward. As Ed recovers, he and Alphonse set off on a journey to find out how to create a Philosopher's Stone so they can use alchemy to get their bodies back, to Edward's arm and leg and Alphonse's entire body. To solidify their resolve, they burn down their house before leaving so that they would have nothing to return to. The course now the course of the series would take way too long to unpack here. I advise you that you go watch the series for yourself. It's awesome. There are actually two different series. They take somewhat <clears throat> different trajectories because one is more faithful to what happens in the manga than the other. The other se anime series, which is older, took a lot more poetic license. But they're both really good. Um, 
So, yeah, the the one that's more closer to the manga is called Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood. Uh, of course, if you just read the manga, then you don't have you don't have to worry about choosing between the two. But um, but I'll just I'll just cut to the chase here. Everything that happens to Ed and Al leads up to them saving a lot of people because the main antagonist who created a bunch of homunculi uh, minions homunculi minions that are each named after the seven deadly sins. Uh, the main antagonist was going to u- absorb a large number of human souls to gain immortality. And he was going to do that using a city-wide transmutation circle. Now, had Edward and Alphonse's mother not died, they would not have freely chosen to use alchemy to bring her back to life. And if they had not freely chosen to use alchemy to bring her back to life, they wouldn't have lost their bodies to the realm of the truth. And if that had not happened, they would not have gone off on a journey to figure out how to make a philosopher's stone to get their bodies back. And if they had not done that, then the two main antagonists of the series would have succeeded in committing mass homicide. They would have killed an entire city of people just to extend their lives. Let's pretend that this was real and not scripted by Hiromu Arakawa. That's the name of the woman who wrote the manga series. Um, In this case, we could say that God had a morally sufficient reason for permitting Trisha Elric to die. And interestingly, interestingly enough, this is not something I talk about in the blog post, I don't think, but um, Edward uh, actually became an agnostic as a result of this of the of the horrible things that uh, that happened to him and Alphonse. Um, he he literally he literally shouted at the at, at God, looking up at the sky one time, uh, and, and, and said, "Stop jerking me around." Uh, it, yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, the, this, but, uh, Edward did not know, he, he, he did not know that he was not in a moral, he was not in an epistemically situated circumstance to judge God's reasons for, for permitting what he and his brother were going through. God knew that a greater good would not come about unless he permitted Trisha Elric to get sick and die. He knew that all, he knew all of the events that would come to pass based on the single event of Trisha Elric's passing. The homunculi and the main antagonist, who identi- whose identity I will conceal because it's a huge it's a huge spoiler uh, just revealing the the true identity of the main antagonist. Go watch it yourself if you want to know who the main antagonist is. But uh, they would not, the antagonist would not have been stopped if, say, God miraculously, if he intervened, miraculously healed Trisha. And so Edward's anger toward God and, and, and his distrust of God, I mean, I think Edward still believed in God because he was just angry at him based on some of the things that he said. I don't think he was a true agnostic, um, but anyway, I mean, he was not in a he was not in a sufficient position to judge that God had no good reason that that he was that he was just jerking Edward around. 
God has morally sufficient reasons for permitting bad things to happen. Every event that occurs sends ripples into the future. Now, this is this fact is problematic for advocates of the evidential version of the problem of evil. They have to show that it's improbable that God could have more, uh, good reasons for allowing the bad things that we see in the world. And they just can't, because every single event sends ripples into the future. God, the re one event causes another, and that event causes another, and that event causes another, uh, and they cause some events cause other multiple events. That's again, time travel advocate, time travel enthusiasts know this full well. That's why they, that's why they're always so careful when they go back in time because they don't want to they don't want to tamper too much with what happens because everything affects what comes after those events. And so God could have God could have allow something terrible to happen. And he could have one, two, three, maybe a hundred different reasons that would not manifest themselves until century and maybe a hundred different reasons that manifest themselves in different points in time in different people's lives. In in, in different eras of history. Only and all know the only one who would know whether or not God has a, a the only one who would be able to make such probability judgments is God himself. Again, God providentially ordering a world of free creatures towards all of his envisioned goals is an extremely, overwhelmingly complex endeavor. And again, temporal islands are not... Are not uh, events are not temporal islands unto themselves. Uh, you know, in the story of Joseph, God allowed Joseph's brothers to... He didn't intervene to stop his brothers from selling him into slavery. He didn't intervene to stop uh, Pontifar's wife from falsely accusing Joseph of rape. Um, and so on. Uh, he knew that if he allowed this unfortunate series of events to happen to Joseph, that he would be in the circumstance to interpret... Two of his prison mates' dreams, um, and then when one of them is, was released, and the pharaoh had the dream about you know the seven fattened calves and the seven uh, skinny calves, which represented seven years of famine and seven years of abundance, or seven years of abundance and seven years of fa uh, famine, that uh, then the pharaoh would say, "Hey, I, this dream is bothering me. I need someone to interpret it." And the cupbearer would be like, "Oh, hey, by the way, there was this guy in, that interpreted my dream back when back when I was in prison, and uh, you know you should probably go get him. He, I'm sure, uh, you know everything that he predicted came to pass. So you should probably, Pharaoh, you should probably go get this guy. And since he uh, faith, since he accurately interpreted our dreams, he can probably inter accurately interpret yours. And then Joseph interpreted his dreams." said that they rep they both represented seven years of abundance, seven years of famine, um, and that led to Joseph saying, hey, we should probably store up food during the seven years of abundance so that everyone has food to eat during the seven years of famine. And as a result, as a result of all of these series of events, many people's lives were, were saved. And, and Joseph realized this himself because in Genesis 50-20, when he is reunited with his brothers, he says to his brothers, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. He brought me to this position, and that is uh, a governor in Egypt, 
to save the lives of many people. Now, that was certainly one of God's goals, but it wasn't the only goal. That wasn't... Because what happens next? Well, the exodus from Egypt. Um, and God had to win Israel's trust by defeating their gods through various plagues uh, and then lead them into the promised land and, and, and all that. So we cannot fathom the entangled web of cause and effect that each event has on future events. So, ev uh, advocates of the probabilistic version of the problem of evil, I think, have too heavy a burden of proof to, to carry. They're just not in a position to say, oh, it's just so unlikely that God would have a good reason for permitting whatever it is. Fill in the blank. Fill in the bl put put your put your favorite instance of suffering in there, and you can't say God. Yeah, God. It's, it's just so unlikely. As Doctor William Lane Craig explains, quote, evils which appear pointless to us within our limited framework may be seen to have been justly permitted within God's wider framework. To borrow an illustration from a developing field of science, chaos theory, scientists have discovered that certain ma macroscopic systems, for example, weather systems or insect populations, are extraordinarily sensitive to the tiniest perturbations. A, bu a butterfly fluttering on a branch in West Africa may set in motion forces which would eventually issue a, a, in a hurricane over the Atlantic Ocean. Yet it is impossible, in principle, for anyone observing that butterfly palpitating on a branch to predict such an outcome. The brutal murder of an innocent man or a child's dying of leukemia could produce a sort of ripple effect through history such that God's morally sufficient reason for permitting it might not emerge until centuries later and perhaps in another land. When you think of God's providence over the whole of human history, I think you can see how hopeless it is for limited observers to speculate on the probability that God could have a morally sufficient reason for permitting a certain evil. We're just not in a good position to, uh, to assess such probabilities, end quote. Uh, this quote is taken from a paper, a, a uh, popular writing uh, on reasonablefaith.org. It's just simply titled The Problem of Evil by Dr. William Lane Craig. The next example from anime I want to talk about is from One Punch Man. Now, if, if you, even if you aren't familiar with this anime, you, you, you've probably seen the character. If you are friends with David Wood, or if you've watched him on YouTube... Uh, his personal YouTube, uh, I mean, his personal Facebook page, he's got Saitama as his profile pic. And on his YouTube channel, he, he, he has a bookshelf behind him. I've got Captain Crunch on my bookshelf behind me on my YouTube videos. The, YouTube, the bookshelves are empty, by the way. I know someone commented on the, pay, on the YouTube video saying, Hey, are, why, are your, why are your bookshelves empty? Are you going through a move? It's, you know, we're fighting a roach infestation, and I've, I've moved the books to a safe location because the, the roaches were kind of ruining it, ruining the books with their scat, and I had to, lice, I had to Lysol every single one. Um, yeah, we're at, we're at war with these suckers, uh, but I moved them out, I moved them to a safe storage location, 
and I hope to get them back soon. <clears throat> but uh, anyway, I got Captain Crunch on mine. David Wood has Saitama on on his bookshelf behind him. Uh, now, one One Punch Man is a show about a man who lost uh, he lost his job. He was depressed over it. But he found a new calling after saving a young child from a weird giant lobster monster thing. After saving the day, after saving that child, um, he decided he wanted to be a superhero. So he did a humanly impossible training regimen, which resulted in him becoming the strongest man on Earth. Uh, his training regimen consisted of 100 push-ups, 100 sit-ups, 100 squats, and a 10-kilometer run every single day for one and a half years. 100 push-ups, 100 sit-ups, 100 squats, and a 100-kilometer run every single day for one and a half years. He did this insane workout every day. Oh, and he didn't use heat in the winter or air conditioning in the summer. He would die in South Carolina, by the way. <laughs> As a result, he became the strongest man in the world, so strong that he can kill any monster with a single punch. Hence, hence the name One Punch Man. Now, <clears throat> throughout the course of the series, there have been threats that the other city superheroes were not able to defeat, even when they joined forces. But when Saitama arrived, he was able to p kill it with a single punch. Usually, Saitama wasn't first on the scene because he was held up for some reason or he got lost on the way. I forgot to mention that this is a comedy as well as an action show. It's an action comedy. It's kind of a... <clears throat> it kind of parodies uh, superhero comics. Um, and there, w there was one enemy at the end of the first season. And by the way, I I've been so busy, I I'm just... The only, the only anime I've been able to keep up with is Pokemon, which, by the way, is great. Season 23, Pokemon Journeys, is absolutely fantastic. But I, there, the second season of One Punch Man is out. It's out in dub, English dub, and I still haven't seen it. Uh, it's just cerebral faith that's just keeping me so busy nowadays. Um, but anyway, at the enemy at the end of season one... Lord Boros, was so strong that none of the other heroes could defeat him, and even Saitama had to put forth a good bit of effort in defeating him. Lord Boros was so strong that even Saitama had to put, in, uh, put forth some effort to defeat him. Now, imagine if Saitama hadn't lost his job. If Saitama hadn't lost his job, he never would have decided to become the One Punch Man. And if Saitama hadn't decided to become the One Punch Man, Earth would have been doomed. It would have been doomed. None of the other heroes would have been able to, to, to do anything about it. They weren't strong enough. Now, from Saitama's perspective, it may have seemed like God could have no morally sufficient reason for permitting him to lose his job, or pretending that this is real like we did with Full Metal Alchemist. But there was a good reason. The the reason now, now let's I want to let's let's I, I want to talk to people out there, out there in podcast land. Maybe you've lost your job. Maybe you're depressed about it. 
maybe it's due to the COVID-19 pandemic, which is going on at the time at the time of uh, recording this. Um, you know, maybe things are hard right now. But do know that God has good reasons for permitting you to go through what you're going through. Uh, we can't tell what those reasons are because we're not omniscient, but God is. Now, <laughs> I'm not God probably doesn't want you to do an insanely and inhuman a humanly impossible workout regimen in the hopes of becoming a superhero, but he could have other plans for you. This is why Proverbs 3.5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Um, you, you, may have to, you may have to pray for strength to, to, to get through the, this hard time, but, you know, God will give you the strength. God, God will... You know, it's it's a little bit cliche to say, but it's true. Sometimes God calms the storm. Sometimes he calms his child. And, yeah, just just ask God to, to help you and to strengthen you and, to, and to, to help you trust in him. You know, maybe it, it's hard to trust in him sometimes when things get really, really bad, but... Um, you know, God, God can increase your faith. He can help you do that. Um, as the Bible says, where does my help come from? My, my help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Thank you for listening to the Cerebral Faith Podcast. Um, I advise that you watch, if you have not watched any of these animes, you need to go do so right now. Um, you can probably find some of the, you could probably find all of these on Netflix or Hulu or, um, but they're really great. And they all, while when I was watching these shows world viewishly, uh, that is to say, I, I, I look at, every, I, I try to look at everything through the lens of my Christian worldview. Um, that, and when I, when I did that, I'm like, oh, hey, <laughs> Hey, look, I mean, these writers were not, these writers were not, you know, trying to, they weren't trying to to give good illustrations of God be, being able to bring good out of evil or give lessons on total depravity and, and the human predicament, but they did anyway, because this is God's world, and this is what, so, uh, by the way, I want to give a shout-out to my patrons, Austin Long, Kevin Walker, David Parrish, Michelle Minton, Andrew Melnick, Christopher Rogers, uh, Jordan Hampton, Nathan Hamilton, Edwin Liu, and Brandon Whitaker. Still doing this from memory because I forgot to... I, I told you, I've been busy lately. <laughs> I forgot to make another... Uh, word that I don't know what the MacBook equivalent of of WordPad is. Uh, I, I gotta make one so I don't have to list these off by memory, or I can pull up the Patreon relation manager. 
thank you guys. Your your patronage is really great. And uh, if you got if any of you are not pay, listen, any of you out there listening to this podcast are not patrons, I really wish that you consider becoming one because you because not only does it help me because um, like I use I used Patreon money lately to sign up for uh, Storyblocks, which is a stock footage. Uh, company, you have to you have to pay thirty nine dollars a month, and that I'm using that to get a whole bunch of diff, uh, different stock uh, videos to to use in the YouTube videos I'm making. Um, I'm using Patreon money to pay for the website, the host Alpha Technologies. Uh, they charge me twenty nine dollars a month. Uh, I also use the money to to get uh, books and and um, other things for research to. So I can learn more stuff, so I can uh, study and put more new insight, and then I can go on to tell you guys what I learned. And um, but you get you guys get good stuff in return too. You get early access to the YouTube videos, early access to the podcast episodes, except when I'm late, like this time around. Uh, you get early access to the blog posts. You get all of my Kindle books. Uh, if you're on the $10 tier, you can get an, a, a patron-exclusive audiobook, uh, an audiobook adaptation to books that I've written, like The Case for the One True God, My Redeemer Lives, um, and you get shout-outs on the podcast and on the YouTube videos. You'll see your name listed at the end of the YouTube videos. So you get some really good stuff, and so that's patreon.com slash cerebralfaith. And, again, if you haven't seen any of the YouTube videos, go do so. Uh, I try to make each video better than the last. I'm still a bit of a rookie when it comes to video making. But uh, I've watched a lot of how-to videos. And I'm getting a lot of tips and tricks from Michael Jones of Inspiring Philosophy. So, I mean, yeah. So, you, that's really nice. Thank you for listening. I will see you next time. God bless and peace out.